Good afternoon and welcome to Power for the People here on Solar Powered WERU-FM. Um, WERU station is solar powered uh, thanks to a power purchase agreement uh, put in place by Sundog Solar uh, back in 2020, I'm pleased to say. The goal of Power for the People is to help uh, Mainers understand their energy options so that you can make informed choices and reduce your costs and even reduce your climate impact. That would be nice. Uh, and things have changed recently, thanks to uh, legislation uh, here in Maine, and especially federal legislation that has happened actually since the last time we were on the air here. And to talk about this, I'm pleased to introduce Jack Shapiro, who is the Climate and Clean Energy Director from NRCM. Welcome, Jack. Hi, Steve. Great to be here. Uh, we haven't met uh, before, but I'm, I'm glad to have this opportunity to touch base with you. Uh, your predecessor, Dylan Foreese, was on the program a couple of times, and, and as was Lisa Pullman, who just retired from NRCM. Uh, so this is a perfect opportunity uh, relative to uh, especially the Climate Change Act that has just passed. So uh, you have a master's degree from Harvard in public administration, and I see that you work in the Obama administration and uh, Greenpeace and Organizing for Action. Maybe just tell us a little bit more about your background that led you to be here at NRCM. Yeah, well, um, first of all, it's it's great to be here, Steve, um, representing NRCM and and uh, you know our long history of, uh, of of work on climate and clean energy issues. Um, you know, yeah, like you said, I, I spent a, a lot of my early career working on these same issues at the at the federal level in in Washington D.C. and and elsewhere. Um, but uh, I really wanted to focus more on um, how these policies were really implemented at the state and local level, um, because there are so many important ways that we need to uh, execute the transition to clean energy and, um, and away from fossil fuels and reducing emissions that, that have to happen at the state level and at the local level and at the individual level. Um, so when uh, I, I really jumped at the chance to uh, to come work for NRCM, which is which is such a great organization with such a long history, um, and uh, um, and to work in Maine, where uh, there is so much exciting work happening um, in this area, um, which we can which we can get a lot more into. All right. Well, that's. Uh... I appreciate that. And again, I appreciate you uh, being on. Since, since you just mentioned things that need to happen at the state and local level, again, we want to, I think uh, the, the really exciting thing is, in fact, to talk about the Inflation Reduction Act. But let's just start at the local level uh, and uh, at the local meaning Maine and talk about what happened in the state legislature this year that uh, relates directly to people's lives. Uh, and there's uh, there's a few things there where I've actually had some trouble finding information. So let's let's just start there and and at least spend a few minutes talking about the the state uh, legislation and then what can happen locally as well. Yeah, absolutely. So um, to to put it in in context for your your listeners, Steve, we have had a real flurry of uh, of climate and energy legislation and and policymaking happen in Maine. Since uh, since 2019, um, we set new greenhouse gas reduction goals. Um, we set a new renewable portfolio standard target of, of 80% renewable energy by by 2030 and 100% by 2050. Um, and this past legislative session, which uh, which uh, ended in the late spring, um, you know, as as your listeners may know, is sort of the second half of the of the full legislative you know two year legislative calendar. And there's just been a, a ton of activity. Um, some of the bills that we were 
really excited to work on, um, you know, included uh, extending, you know, electric vehicle incentives in the, in the supplemental budget. Um, we also worked on a, a really important affordable housing bill, but one that also, you know, incentivize a little, incentivizes a little bit more um, compact uh, development, um, which is really important for, um, for making sure that we reduce transportation costs for people and reduce emissions coming from transportation, which is our state's biggest source of emissions. Um, and uh, one that we probably worked on the, the most was a uh, bill that instituted an integrated grid planning process uh, in Maine. So as, as some of your listeners might know, the sort of really important trend in, in energy is both shifting to renewable sources of energy and away from fossil fuels, which are, are not only polluting, but they're very expensive. And the pricing of those are, is very volatile. Um, you know, most of the price increases that people have seen in energy is, is directly tied to the volatility of fossil fuel markets, whether that's gas prices that people see, you know, on, on the street corner um, and, and have to pay at the pump, or whether that's, you know, home heating bills from, you know, gas or propane or heating oil, um, or whether that's even electricity bills, you know, that, that's being driven by New England's reliance on natural gas for power generation. So that's a big, big element of it. But as we also uh, transition to electricity in other areas, um, like electric vehicles, replacing gas-powered vehicles, um, but also in people's homes, whether that's uh, heat pumps for home heating um, or, uh, or, or for cooking, you know, we're going to have a lot more demands on the electricity grid. And if we do that grid transition wrong, um, we could have our utilities, um, you know, charging us an arm and a leg for a lot of upgrades that, that may not be necessary and are sort of designed with their own profit incentives in mind. But if we do it right, um, we could have a lot uh, more flexible, more reliable, and far, far more lower cost grid um, to enable all of the rest of this transition. And so the integrated grid planning process that we put in place through, uh, through a law, LD 1959, um, in in uh, in the spring uh, is some is a, a piece of progress we're we're really proud of but but in some ways is is just the beginning there's going to be several years of implementation to make sure that planning process goes um, the way that we want it and has those benefits for for main people in terms of reduced costs um, and uh, increased deployment of these money saving clean energy technologies but that's one uh, that's one uh, bill that we worked on. Um, among a bunch of others. Well, so that's uh, that's an important uh, one to uh, to spend a couple of minutes talking about, I think. Um, and uh, as you may have seen, uh, you know, I've, my house has been 100% electric since uh, 2016. Uh, took the darn oil boiler right out uh, and heat with heat pumps. Um, and uh, and you mentioned uh, you alluded to uh, the cost of uh, fossil fuels and uh, those people out there heating with oil uh, paid roughly an arm and a leg this past winter. Uh, for their uh, for their heat and and I just uh, might add as I mentioned on this program at least last month uh, my heating bill went up about a hundred dollars uh, this year and, and uh, so my electricity my hot water and my heat all cost me about a thousand bucks a year in a, in, I might add in a 1948 older home um, so uh, there are so many reasons for people to think about getting off of fossil fuels 
it's not just it's not just climate change. It's your personal budget, and, and you can you can win on both sides. So relative to the grid, though, I mean, especially because CMP and uh, has already submitted a proposal for a big another big increase, and version is about to as well. Tell what's the process here that's going to happen uh, from LD 1959 for for grid improvement. Yeah. So the the way that um, the way that it will play out uh, is uh, in later this year in November the there will be a process that starts at the Public Utilities Commission um, with really the with, with some provisions for public input into the grid planning process, which is which is a pretty new uh, a new thing. Um, as that, we don't know exactly what that process will look like. We're, we're engaged with a lot of our partners and with the commission and, um, and, and with others about, um, you know, what we would like to see in that process and sort of how that can be inclusive um, and, um, uh, and, and help the priorities of Maine people really drive that process and, and not just the utility's um, own interests. Um, then the uh, the commission will sort of require a uh, a plan of the utilities, and they'll have actually about a year and a half to come up with that plan because this is a pretty you know it's a pretty complex and technical process to uh, to do this kind of integrated grid planning. But we are um, some of the provisions in the law are are really first in the nation provisions. You know we you know a number of states do grid planning in in, in different ways, but uh, Maine's process is. Uh, unique in a couple of ways. One is that it requires the utilities to come up with plans to actually meet our detailed climate action plan that we that we came up with as a state that came out in, in 2020. So that's not just sort of these high-level greenhouse gas reduction goals, but it's the specific you know, heat pump adoption goals that, that go through uh, Efficiency Maine, that's specific uh, EV goals um, that'll help reduce pollution and save people money. And the utility has to come up with a plan that actually speaks to those specific strategies that are in that um, climate action plan. And the other thing that we are doing that most other states um, do not have, and you know, and to be fair, we we learned from other states' processes and you know improved approved upon them as we were drafting our bill, is uh, to take into account um, you know uh, equity and environmental justice in the uh, plans it, themselves. Um, so, you know, as, as your listeners probably know, um, the impacts of, uh, of pollution, the impacts of climate change, economic impacts don't fall on everybody evenly. Um, and low-income Mainers in particular are, pay a much higher percentage of their income for energy. Um, you know, in, it's Maine, you know, you, you, can't, you can't not heat your house uh, in the winter. Um, the... Uh, so, uh, you know, a lot of people don't have as many options for where they live relative to where they work um, because of our high housing costs here. Um, so, so, the, uh, so that was a really important uh, thing as well that we put in place. Um, so we intend to be, you know, fully engaged in that process throughout um, and, and really holding the utilities feet to the fire um, so that we see a, a much uh, smarter and lower cost, um, you know, grid grid transition. Um, you know, I think one example um, that that people may not be aware of, you know, we we had sort of an initial uh, pilot project for you know thinking about how we build out our our grid um, that that we just saw some big news on in the past couple months. 
And, you and what, know, so what was that one? Yeah, so so it's uh, it has a little bit of a wonky name. It's the non-wires alternatives uh, uh, process. And but but basically, what it means is when the utility comes to the commission, you know, which has to approve all of their expenditures, and says, you know, we want to rebuild this section of the grid. Um, they're required to evaluate all the different options for how to meet the you know the load and reliability standards that they have. So in one case, they could just, you know, double the size of the transformers and the substations and, you know, raise the heights of the towers and, you know, but, but that's a very expensive way to, uh, to meet those standards. Um, what we saw just a few, uh, I think it was a few months ago now, was the first time when an alternative project was approved where um, there's a specific coordinator for this within the Office of the Public Advocate, you know, the sort of state's ratepayer advocate in partnership with Efficiency Maine. And they, instead of rebuilding a transmission line in Brunswick and Topsom, uh, they, they decided to use a combination of some, some local solar, some uh, medium scale batteries that'll probably be hosted either at Bowdoin or, or one of the hospitals there. Uh, and some uh, energy efficiency and demand response. And overall, just for that one section of line, about a five mile section of, uh, of the grid is gonna save, uh, is gonna save main ratepayers about $9 million. So CMP alone has almost 300 comparable sections of the grid. So if we think about what the implications could be for cost savings as we, uh, as we make this transition, um, they could be really sizable. Um, and they could have significant downward pressure uh, on rates, um, which is going to be really important as we as we make this transition. So that uh, I'm glad you brought that up. And the non-wires alternative is uh, is something that uh, I hadn't hadn't been on my radar screen to talk about specifically. <laughs> but a project that happened a number of years before you came to Maine was the Booth Bay project by Grid Solar. Are you familiar with that? Yeah, absolutely. And that and that's another example of how. Um, these sort of suite of alternatives um, can eliminate the need for a really expensive transmission line build out. And, and that, that project in Booth Bay was sort of the inspiration for this uh, non-wires alternatives process, which has just sort of come up with its first, you know, big win for ratepayers. And, it, um, it, it and we, we hope to see more. It does seem to me that, uh, I mean, in fact, we actually, I have the, uh, the architect of that Booth Bay project on this program a number of years ago. And it just seems to me that it, that, that type of thing hasn't gotten nearly enough coverage, if you will. Uh, and so I'm, I'm glad that we're going to the non-wires alternative. Uh, and I hope that we do hold the utilities feet to the fire. Uh, and you referred to a moment ago that they have profit incentive to not necessarily do this. Uh, and I, I guess I'm, I'm going to, uh, to take a sidebar here and just ask if if NRCM has been involved in the consumer-owned utility debate in any way, or if, if you have any input or opinions on that, opinions that you're allowed to, to mention. Yeah, no, of course. Yeah, I mean, I think the it, it's really clear that our utilities are not delivering the levels of performance that we, that we need, um, whether that's in terms of reliability, whether that's in terms of cost, whether that's in terms of you know, interconnecting renewable energy projects. You know, one of the biggest, you know, it, the renewable energy is the cheapest energy that is coming onto the grid 
uh, in New England and around the country and in most places around the world. Um, however, that needs to get plugged in to the grid. Um, and uh, especially as we think about, um, you know, for example, solar installations that are a little bit more distributed around the grid. So a little bit smaller scale, maybe sited in places that make a little bit more sense. Um, it's, they're not really directly comparable to a giant power plant like a main Yankee nuclear plant or a Wyman station oil fire plant in Yarmouth, for example. You know, so those actually need to be engineered into the grid to, you know, so that the grid can still function. Um, and, and that relies on the utilities and the, you know, the regional system operator to all work together in a, in a much better way than they are, than they're, than they're currently doing. So it's, it's certainly possible that the, that the consumer and utility could, could provide some, some big benefits to, to Mainers. I know that the, that, that our power, the, the organization behind the, um, uh, behind that is is busy collecting signatures right now, and our understanding is it'll probably be on the ballot in 2023. Um, you know, and we're looking forward to you know we're looking forward to that debate and seeing what the um, you know what you know how that plays out over the next uh, the next year or so. And, and of course, one of the issues uh, facing that uh, potential initiative is the uh, the advertising power of the people and the entities behind the utilities. And, uh, you know, there's there's misleading, I'm going to say there's misleading ads out there talking about how your electric bill, I think I saw an ad somewhere, or, or I, you know, actually what it was, somebody approached me to sign a petition against the consumer-owned utility and said, did you know that your electric bill is going to go up $200 a month? You know, that kind of stuff is just so unfortunate because it's just fundamentally wrong. Uh, and so that, that will be an interesting debate for sure. Uh, and we've got a ways to go on that one. So I just want to remind everybody that you're listening to Power for the People here on WERU-FM, uh, 89.9 in Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor. And uh, the guest today is Jack Shapiro, the Climate and Energy Director from uh, Natural Resource Council of Maine. So again, thanks for being on, Jack. Um, let's see. So we were just talking about the non-wires alternative and uh, the fact that there's uh, we've had a, a good example from the Booth Bay project uh, a number of years ago, and that the one is moving forward in the Brunswick area. Uh, one thing that I just thought I would mention for uh, uh, listeners' information, uh, the state, the 2020 Climate Action Plan uh, talks about 80% renewables by 2030. You said, I thought it was 2035. Is it uh, no, I believe it's I believe it's 2030. Okay, uh, and I I did see uh, in my internet feed that Rhode Island just passed a uh, I guess I'm gonna I'm gonna call it a bill to be 100% renewable 100% renewable by 2033, and we're not actually propose, uh, proposing to get to 100% by 2050. I mean the interesting thing here is of course that uh, if you count hydro, which doesn't technically count count in the in the uh, in the in the mix, uh, we're 80% right now. And it just seems like we have the opportunity, if we if we acknowledge that, to get to 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 beat those projections already. What's what's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's certainly it's certainly possible. Um, you know, the uh, as as always in 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 many of these climate and energy conversations, there's a um, you know there's this. The sort of inexorable science of of climate and, and emissions that that we need to meet, um, 
but there are also, you know, a lot of the, you know, human institutional factors and, you know, technological and financial factors about making this, this transition. Um, you know, we've seen, um, we've seen a huge amount of progress um, over the last, uh, the last bunch of years. Um, the, you know, the solar in Maine has, I think, quintupled and is actually, you know, the, the larger scale solar procurements that the PUC have done, has done, you know, a lot of people miss this, but in June, they actually put through a rate decrease that was directly tied to the solar procurements that they had done over the last few years. Um, you know, so, so solar energy is, is expanding and it is driving costs down. Um, the, there was a, just a study from the Maine Renewable Energy Association that um, I can't remember the time period off the top of my head, but there was uh, in the next several years, you know, solar uh, companies were going to be investing um, over $500 million in, uh, in Maine um, and, you know, hiring, uh, hiring a ton of people to build out, build out these projects. Um, you know, another thing that we are uh, working on here at NRCM is uh, uh, working on the responsible development of offshore wind in the Gulf of Maine. Um, as we, you know, as we electrify our, our transportation and our home heating, um, we're going to need a lot more renewable energy. Um, you know, energy, overall energy use, because of the success of, of some of the efficiency uh, technologies and, and all of that, really overall nationally hasn't really risen since the 80s or 90s, overall, overall electricity use, that is. But we're going to see that change as we electrify the heating and the transportation sectors. Um, and we need to make sure that that uh, new demand is filled by renewable energy, um, not, by, um, you know, not by fossil fuels with all the the problems that that causes both for the climate and for air pollution and for cost. So um, offshore wind is a huge opportunity for Maine. Um, it, uh, offshore wind in the Gulf is gonna be floating offshore wind. So these are uh, turbines that are gonna be 25, 30, 35 miles offshore. Um, they, we, the Gulf of Maine has some of the highest and um, most sustained wind speeds in the world. Um, so that means that those turbines will be uh, generating power more often. Um, so we get a bigger bang for our buck for every, every turbine we put in the water in the Gulf. Um, but floating offshore wind technology is, is relatively new compared to the, uh, the kind that we're seeing happen in, in Europe and in Southern New England where the turbines are, are uh, anchored directly into the, uh, you know, uh, built foundations are built directly on the ocean floor. Um, so there's a lot to be done there. The University of Maine has, a, has their own uh, design for a, a foundation. Um, myself and a number of our colleagues actually were up at the advanced uh, composite lab up in Orono, uh, meeting with the team up there. Um, and really it's just fantastic work that they've done over the last decade or so, uh, putting, um, you know, pulling this, this stuff together because it could be an it could be an entirely new industry for Maine. Um, you know, if we uh, are building these platforms and and some of the turbines, you know, assembling and erecting some of those turbines here in Maine, you know, the what even with what's happening in the uh, you know elsewhere on the eastern seaboard in Massachusetts and in, in uh, uh, Rhode Island, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, um, you know, we could assemble those floating turbines as they fill up their continental shelf where it's shallow enough to build those, those uh, fixed bottom turbines. 
they're going to be moving to floating as well. So it's an enormous uh, potential for growth um, and could have huge economic benefits for, um, uh, for, for Maine and for coastal communities in Maine and for, for manufacturing here and for, for jobs and economic development, in addition to supplying the, uh, the, the zero carbon energy that we need. Um, to meet our climate and our clean energy goals. Yeah, and I think the the interesting uh, contrast there, um, this is just stating facts, is that the previous administration, in, including the LePage administration, uh, were in favor of offshore drilling uh, along the eastern seaboard. Uh, and if you compare wind uh, with uh, fossil fuel offshore drilling, there's really no contest uh, in terms of the potential environmental impacts and things like that. So I... Uh, that's a, certainly an important one to talk about. I was interested. Yeah, and I, I well, I, I will say, you know, the it, it is very important, and we're we're deeply engaged in this to to make sure that we are developing offshore wind in and and in as environmentally responsible way uh, as as possible. You know, there's a the the way that we are approaching this in Maine is in a in a stepwise fashion. You know, there is a a, a full-size demonstration turbine being built off of Monhegan Island. That's a single turbine you know, demonstration project. There is a research array that's sponsored by the state. That's a sort of a medium scale 12 turbine array. Uh, and then there's a commercial leasing process that's underway at the federal level, which will probably be leasing uh, areas in the Gulf of Maine in 2024. But it's really critical that we don't just throw the gates wide open and let developers build offshore wind turbines all over the Gulf of Maine without any kinds of standards or, or research or, or monitoring. You know, we have an incredibly rich ecosystem that's sustained coastal communities in Maine for a long time, um, and we want to do everything that we can to preserve that. So there's a lot of um, data gathering and science that needs to get done. Um, there's a... a, a a lot of input that needs to be, um, you know, collected from existing ocean users and the fisheries community, um, and there, there's just a lot of work to be to be done there um, to make sure that we are doing this uh, doing this responsibly. But we believe that that those things can coexist, um, that the existing users in the Gulf of Maine um, can, you know, can continue to uh, continue to operate there while it also um, while we also well, we also are able to take advantage of this world-class wind resource um, to, to help us meet our climate and clean energy needs and potentially develop a whole new um, industry that could have huge benefits for Maine. So mm -hmm. I just wanted to, to, to get that in there. Right. No question about it, but that is uh, you know, the environmental impact is, uh, is key there. So you said something uh, that I, I was not actually aware of, but the PUC had the rate decrease, at least uh, in for my CMP bill, um, based on the cost of the lower cost of solar and of course if you you know you read the news out of texas they blame solar and wind for causing all of their problems and causing the rate increases um so the puc actually did that to acknowledge that solar was lowering costs yeah so there's there's a couple different ways that solar is flowing onto the grid in maine um the that that people may see different different impacts from um one is um you know, folks that have that are able to build solar on their roof rooftops, um, you know, they they can take advantage of a, a of net metering, where basically the the amount of energy that they um, generate from their solar panels is credited, and then the amount that they you know use, for example, at night when 
when their panels aren't generating, it's all balanced out and they only have to pay, pay the difference. So that's one way. Um, another way is at the sort of total opposite end of the scale is these commercial scale solar projects, which are much, much bigger um, and come in through uh, competitive, um, you know, competitive solicitations at the, at the PUC. And those are incredibly low cost. Um, those are, you know, by far the lowest uh, lowest cost energy that's coming coming onto the grid. Um, you know, so so those are the ones. Th those super low cost ones are the ones that the PUC is directly pointing to in terms of uh, in terms of lowering rates. Um, there was a they did a a press release that I I didn't see any coverage of really. It was back in June um, that CMP bills were going to be going down by about five percent. Um, for the supply uh, side of the bill, um, to uh, 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 related to those uh, related to those projects. Now, the third way is somewhere in the middle, um, which is is community solar. Um, so these are sort of medium sized, um, two to five megawatts. So around like you know you may see them as like a twenty acre project, you know, and they're scattered around Maine. And those are ones where um, consumers can subscribe to them. So Maybe you're a renter. Uh, maybe you live where there's some big trees, which happens sometimes in Maine, <laughs> um, that shade your roof, um, and it's not ideal for a rooftop solar array. Um, and those are those are places where uh, companies uh, you can subscribe to those projects, and they'll sort of guarantee you a savings of a certain percentage of, uh, of usually it's fifteen percent on your electricity bill. So um, those are those are sort of three different ways that people can experience uh, solar. Uh, but we're definitely seeing those those uh, what they call grid scale solar projects um, are are directly um, connected with with reducing reducing bills. I think it's important that you mention that these uh, these industrial scale solar projects are the lowest cost solar out there. Um, and I've heard rumors, and I cannot find it myself, that legislation in the last uh, session did put some kind of restrictions on community solar. And uh, let me just say, I mean, there's a link on the WERU website and, and uh, I think you may be aware of, of the fact that uh, back this winter, um, the uh, local media focused on my property, uh, my house, and you know, again, I'm 100% electric and, and part of the message there was community solar. And as you just said, community solar is perfect for apartment dwellers uh, and for people with shade. And that's part of that. I mean, I, some, some neighboring trees on my property makes solar a little bit iffy on my roof. And so I did sign up for community solar, but uh, we've covered community solar recently on this program a couple of times since the big rate increase happened. And so these lowest cost solar installations are giving you 15% off the new CMP rate when they were making a profit, giving you 15% off the old CMP rate. And so to me, they're making, I use the term, they're making windfall profits right now. And I'm just wondering, in the last legislative session, was there or what was the uh, the legislation that applied to community solar? Yeah, so it gets, it gets a little complicated. So I'll try not to get into too much of the technical detail, but what essentially what the legislature did was cap the level of compensation that these project owners, the, the companies, uh, could uh, could could get from their from their projects. You know what? There was a 2019 law. You know, 2019 solar law that that sort of expanded the community solar program, and 
it was more successful, I think, than anyone uh, anyone imagined, mm. which was um, which was great news for um, for getting more uh, more solar on the grid and giving more people access to that. Um, but it, it essentially compensated these larger scale solar developments at a retail rate. You know, that's what net metering is. Um, and that rate was tied to the, the, the sort of floating, floating rate that, that, um, that, that comes with the, the standard offer, basically the supply rate that most people pay for electricity. And so, so yeah, I think there was some concern that there would be, that there would be windfall profits there. So the legislature basically capped it, I believe at, um, you know, a, a previous year's level. And I don't remember off the top of my head, which year it was, if it's 2021. So what, what, or, is, or what is the, what's the ramification for what they're charging the, the consumer then? Um, I, I think the consumer will still see the, um, will still see that 15% savings off the, off the standard offer. Um, but what it does mean is that the, the, the developers won't see sort of a runaway, um, you know, they won't see a runaway, uh, you know, piece of profit, which is, which is good. I mean, we, we do so want where, to does, see, where does the money go? Well, for, for the ones that are, that are on, under this, they, you know, they will see additional, you know, they will see additional profits from, uh, you know, from, you know, from this. So, so in fact, even though they, they've capped the profit for the owners, the consumers are not going to benefit at all. Um, I mean, I think they'll still see those 15%, you know, they'll still see savings on their electricity bill. Um, right. But, but it's 15% off the higher rate, not 15% off the lower rate. I mean, to me, you know, a, a uh, socially aware community solar, I'll just say it should be giving us 30 or 35%, uh, not 15. Um, but anyway, we don't, that's, uh, we've covered that on another program. We don't need to go into that in great detail. We do, uh, we are over half the way into the program. And I think it's the uh, appropriate time to shift to the uh, Inflation Reduction Act at the federal level because it's a it's a big deal. Uh, you know the, the the U.S. has finally taken a step uh, to uh, maybe actually put itself back in the leadership role relative to climate and energy issues. So uh, let's let's talk about that if you don't mind. And again, just a reminder here that we're uh, speaking with uh, Jack Shapiro, the Climate and Clean Energy Director for Natural Resource Council of Maine, here on Power for the People on WERUFM. So. Uh, the uh, I guess the, the biggest picture that I presume most people have caught up with uh, in their news feed somewhere is the extension of the solar uh, rooftop solar PV incentive. So talk about that one briefly, and then let's talk about some of the other nuances. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, nuance might even be the wrong approach to talking about this bill. <laughs> um, it really right. is. Uh, it really is a tremendous accomplishment. Um, for uh, for anyone who cares about who um, anyone who cares about climate, but also anyone who cares about um, clean energy and making it more available um, to uh, to to more people, um, you know, as you, I, I think you know, there are a ton of provisions in this bill, um, you know, hundreds and hundreds. Um, you know, the way that we are looking at it is sort of in you know through through the lens of of our program, which focuses on three areas of of, uh, of climate and clean energy in Maine, one of which is uh, re renewable energy, um, one of which is is transportation, and one of one of which is sort of buildings. And this bill has multiple uh, programs for for each of those things. Um, 
on the on the renewable energy side, I think essentially what it does is continue to uh, drive the costs of renewable energy down. Um, you know, we've seen uh, the cost of solar decline, you know, by ninety percent in the past ten or twelve years. Um, we've seen the cost of batteries drop by ninety percent in the past ten or twelve years. We've seen the cost of wind drop by about uh, two thirds, um, and so this will continue to push uh, those clean energy technologies and others um, to be the, the default choice um, as we make, make this transition. Um, you know, there was an analysis by, the, by, by Princeton that showed that this bill and the provisions in it would drive the first reductions in fossil fuel demand in the United States ever in history. Um, uh, because of uh, because of its support for for uh, uh, for for clean energy, and and to be clear, you know, if people are concerned about um, uh, incentives for energy, you know, there have been incentives for fossil fuel development that have been on the books for for a you know a century or more. So so it's not like this is just you know leveling the playing field, and not to mention wars and things <laughs> like that that have yeah. related to fossil fuels. Yeah, absolutely. So so I think um, you know the. There's there's a ton that that are um, you know in in the transportation, energy, and building space that are directly related to to homeowners, um, you know the rooftop solar and uh, um, and and bat and battery storage at home um, is one of those. Um, it's a thirty percent tax credit. Um, there's a ton of uh, uh, tax incentives in there as well, both both tax credits but also rebates for lower income folks um, for nearly every aspect of uh, home efficiency and electrification, whether that's whether that's efficiency upgrades like insulation, whether that's um, switching from a uh, gas or propane stove to an electric induction stove, um, which really are incredible. If, if you have ever used one or heard of one, um, they're, they're amazing. They actually use they actually use magnets to directly heat the pan on top of the stove surface. Um, so they're incredibly efficient. They, they are incredibly powerful and sort of controllable and they don't create toxic indoor air pollution, which we are increasingly finding out is, is tied to the use of gas stoves inside. And, um, and the whole issue of natural gas, I mean, I'm glad you raised that in particular. I mean, it's uh, we've thought of it maybe for a decade as a bridge fuel, which uh, hasn't really happened all that well as a bridge fuel. Um, but there, again, the, there's plenty of evidence out there that there's all sorts of toxic uh, issues with that. And, uh, and unfortunately, every now and then a house blows up. And we've seen two or three of those happen just in, in recent years. So there's multiple health reasons, shall we say, to, to transition off of natural gas. So, so thank you for mentioning that. And, and yeah. I, also, I also want to pick up, because you mentioned environmental justice a few minutes ago, that this, uh, that this act does talk about uh, incentives for low-income people. And, uh, you know, the bottom line is that uh, inflation and climate change, uh, economic inflation and climate change, they don't affect the wealthy. It affects, uh, you know, it, it just it disproportionately affects everybody as you go to the lower income state. And so that's a big advantage to have that in the bill as well. Yeah, no, ab absolutely. And, and most of these incentives are targeted towards, you know, uh, moderate and, and lower income folks. You know, there's income caps. You know, people that are families that are earning more than three hundred thousand dollars a year, for example, aren't, aren't eligible for 
you know, the EV tax credits and, and things like that. So there's a they, lot of a lot of targeting there. Everybody is is eligible for the 30% tax credit though on solar. Is that correct? I believe that is correct. Yes. Right. Uh, that's it's, um, I've I've seen conflicting stories on that. And and just to uh, to make sure that we're complete, you're we're complete on this. The the 30% tax credit was in place for a number of years. It is now 26% this year uh, officially, but the act has made it uh, 30%. I believe it's retroactive to this year in case you installed solar this year. You know, that is a that is a good question. You know, we're still sorting through some of the, you know, some of the specific details of of some of those different programs because right. there are so many that that touch right. our work. I, I, I would I, have to I'm pretty sure that. it is retroactive to this year. And that 30% mm -hmm. goes out 10 more years before it drops yeah. back to 26%. So it's just a it's a huge opportunity for uh for cost savings and for climate impact and for leadership in the world for the United States. Um, yeah, and and I think you know that's a it's an important point is that the uh, the the incentives for the incentives for solar and wind that have driven down the costs so much, you know that some of that is a is a global phenomenon. You know there are other countries that also have been supporting the the scaling of these industries and the cost reductions that come with that, but the we have never had in this country a 10 year runway for uh, for these credits, which is just so important for developing these industries and allowing um, those uh, th those careers to, you know, to to get set in place for the uh, manufacturing facilities for all of the supply chain stuff The it's a really important uh, runway for for that development, which will then in turn um, make it easier, it'll make costs lower, it'll make it easier for people to participate in these industries uh, and for um, for people to, to benefit. And you, uh, you uh, have uh, alluded to something that was next on my list, that there are incentives in the bill uh, to bring manufacturing back to the U.S. Uh, for both uh, solar panels and for electric vehicles. Uh, and those incentives have created at least in the internet feed that I see, some debate or uncertainty, for example, on which electric vehicles are going to be qualified for uh, for rebates. Any? Uh, can you clarify any of that uh, uncertainty? Um, I, yeah, I can speak to it a little bit. I mean, I think the what we the system that we have now for electric vehicle rebates, and and I want to come back to some of the home stuff because we didn't even touch on all of it. There's so many so many things that are still in the bill, right. but the uh, but but for the for the electric vehicle um, incentives, the system that we have now is a seventy five hundred dollar rebate for a new electric vehicle, um, but it is capped by manufacturer at um, a couple hundred thousand vehicles. So some of the manufacturers that have sold more electric vehicles, um, GM, which which sells the Bolt, uh, Tesla, which sells a, a number of vehicles, and uh, I believe Nissan as well. Uh, and and many of the other ones who are you know as as we've seen EV adoption really start to ramp up over the last year or so, um, last few years, um, more of the manufacturers were going to hit that cap. So so that that tax incentive was really going away already. What this bill does is it ties those tax credits to. Um, a number of sort of domestic requirements. One is that the vehicle has to be assembled in the US. So it's sort of there has to be a, a vehicle factory here that assembles those. Um, the second part is sort of two parts, which is there need to be, uh, they need to have batteries that are made 
in the US significantly, and that those the, the minerals that go into those batteries also need to be sourced um, from the US or some of our free trade partners. Um, and, and with all of those things, you would sort of achieve the full $7,500 credit. So, and, and then, so I'll come back to that in a second, but the other thing that it does is it creates a $4,000 used EV tax credit, which I think is particularly important in, in Maine. Um, you know, as a low-income state where where a lot of people don't buy, um, you know, don't buy brand new vehicles. Um, the important thing, the other important thing to know about like the what's happening right now in the EV market is that there are not enough EVs for everyone who wants to buy them <laughs> right now, and that is that is because of um, increased demand, because of high gas prices. It's because there are a ton more models that have come out that that suit people's needs. Um, you know, they're, they're not necessarily just, you know, high end Tesla's or, or small hatchbacks. There's like a whole suite of, uh, of EV models. And, and so, and, and it's also tied to just the general, you know, snafus with supply chains globally, um, that, that have happened. I mean, it's, it's actually not just affecting EVs, it's affecting all cars. Um, so, so I think the, it's going, there's going to be a little bit of confusion, I think, over the next few years about which vehicles, um, you know, are eligible for the, for the credits. Um, but I think that the, uh, but I think the, the underlying facts, which are that um, there's a lot more models that are being available, um, that EVs will save people a ton of money on their uh, transportation costs. Um, and uh, that they're actually just a lot better experience to drive. You know, um, it will also be true. You know, we just actually concluded, you know, NRCM has done a survey of every electric vehicle owner in Maine. Um, we've done it three times um, starting in 2014, and we just concluded our 2022 survey. And uh, it is almost unanimous that EV owners would, would recommend buying an EV to um, to their to their friends and neighbors, um, there's a you know most of them are saving uh, more than fifty dollars a month on you know their what what they used to pay for for gas. Um, Eighty percent are saving more than twenty five dollars a month. Um, most people's um, you know the the increase in electricity costs from charging is is uh, is far smaller than that. You know there are still a few concerns about you know being able to find charging stations, but but even with you know any of the concerns that people have, they're um, people love their EVs. And I'm sure if any of your listeners have talked to anyone who owns an EV, they've probably experienced this. Um, but I think that that is going to continue to become normalized. Um, and we're going to continue to see, um, a ton of demand for, uh, for EVs. And these, these, uh, this expanded and extended tax credit is, is only going to help. Right. And I think there, there is some uncertainty about it, but to my way of thinking, I mean, your, your phrase that there may be some confusion for a year or two is probably very accurate, but the big picture in, uh, incentive for the industry is to bring the essence of the of the manufacturing back to the U.S., uh, and that's a good thing. So it may just, there may be a little bit of a transition there, but it's going to incentivize that uh, that to happen. The point about used EVs, I think, is, is really important as well. Uh, we've covered EVs on this program a couple of times, and I've said numerous times that if you have a two-car family, one of your cars should be an EV, doggone it, because you don't need two that 
that uh, you know have you can drive hundreds of miles uh, on, a, on a tank of gas and and refill in a hurry. Mo you know, one of your cars is probably used for around the, the town. And I have I have to say I haven't priced things recently, and I know there's inflation in the used car market. But uh, the last the last time we did a, a an electric vehicle drive in at Thomas, uh, a used Leaf uh, was selling for like eight thousand dollars. Uh, you know, so people people have this in this uh, this wrong idea about the the price of these things. So uh, so I think that's that's a really important one. Uh, let's uh, in the, the ten minutes we have left, let's transition to buildings, if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the you know the other you know as, as we were talking about the the incentives for people at at home for these transitions is. Um, you know, it's basically everything that you could think of. You know, it includes heat pumps, it includes heat pump water heaters, uh, it even includes upgrading um, the electrical breaker boxes. You know, mm -hmm. some people, you know, we we recently moved and we have a full panel um, downstairs. Um, so if if we wanted to add, for example, a heat pump or uh, an EV charger at some point in the future. We're going to have to upgrade our electrical panel, and that there's an incentive for that in the uh, um, in the bill as well. Have, have um, building, so, is there anything in the bill that changes building codes? There is. There's some. There's incentives for states to to adopt. Um, you know the the updated building codes. Maine actually already has done so. Um, there was a bill I think uh, in the 2020s or 2020 or 2021 session um, that required the you know the state. Um, you know the state board that that oversees building codes to um, to adopt updated building codes. They did so and are in the process of figuring out the sort of next round of code improvements. Um, it includes both a base code and a, a what's called a stretch code. Um, and and those codes actually, you know, for for new construction uh, can make a really big impact on energy use. I think I think one of the challenges here in Maine is that you know we're we're not going to be able to um, you know, we still need to be really attentive to existing buildings, um, not just new ones. Um, but, but of course, we shouldn't be building buildings that are not energy efficient in this day and age, knowing what we uh, what we know about it. So let me ask you this. Uh, last I knew, uh, smaller communities in the state of Maine were exempt from the, some of the higher standards or maybe exempt from building codes in general. Where does that stand? Um, the... My understanding of it is that uh, communities that are under a population of 4,000 are, are there's it's not required that they enforce the building codes. Uh, you know, technically the codes are statewide, um, and so uh, the base codes, anyways, and so they apply everywhere. Um, but without enforcement, it's hard to um, know how those things are being being implemented. Has there ever um, so you know I'm I'm a lake guy as well as being an energy guy, and so you have to be a certified contractor to do. Uh, work in the shoreland zone, uh, but there's nothing, uh, no kind of certification that I'm aware of for contractors uh, or, or architects for that matter. Um, is there, am I wrong about that? And is there any, uh, any uh, process moving forward on anything like that? Yeah, I, I don't know the answer to that. I, I, I understand that there's, um, I've heard a little bit of um, uh, conversation about a, not necessarily a certification, but a but a registration uh, requirement for contractors more to facilitate just like education about the new building codes. Um, but, but I'm not, uh, I don't, I don't know if I have any, uh, anything to share on, on, uh, on where those, those right. things are. And we've talked, we've had a couple of programs here talking about building construction 
Uh, and, uh, you know, one of my frustrations is, is dealing with contractors and architects who, shall we say, don't care. They want to get in and get out. Uh, and, and in fact, I'll share a story with you. One of the, the, the largest uh, architectural firms in Portland uh, was doing a project at, for us at a previous employer. And they came into the first meeting to talk about this. Uh, and we had already told them that we wanted to go with a net zero solar powered building. And they came in and laid a spreadsheet on the table that proudly said, and proudly said that we're gonna insulate the attic to R37. And I said, do you guys happen to know that the code has been R49 for years? This is the biggest, this is one of the biggest architectural firms in Maine. And they said, it, well, it is, they didn't even know. And so if, we've, if we're running into that kind of thing with the architects, and we've just got a major problem that somehow we've got to resolve. So pardon me for getting up on my soapbox there, but it's uh, it, it's one of one of the frustrations. So uh, uh, what else on the uh, on the on the Inflation Reduction Act? Uh, we've we've got about four minutes now. What else is really important for homeowners to know? Yeah, I mean, I think um, the you know those the, those aspects that we talked about around um, around incentivizing. Um, home efficiency, uh, home renewable energy, and home electrification are are really important. I think um, you know we're really lucky to have an an agency like Efficiency Maine here uh, that already does a ton of this work, um, and so um, I think we'll, we should expect to you know if if folks haven't gone and checked it out, they should absolutely go to efficiencymaine.com and check out the kinds of state incentives that already exist. I think that the the provisions in the Inflation Reduction Act will will only help um, and be additive to those uh, to those incentives. Um, I think the the one other thing that 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 uh, I want to mention too about the electric vehicles, and I think you're exactly right that you know a big motivation in uh, in this bill and sort of the ideas underlying it is to um, is to bring you know the the clean energy industries um, to life. You know here in the United States, um, and and one of those I think that we're going to see based on the you know the requirements for electric vehicles is um, battery recycling. Um, you know there's a there's a lot of um, uh, as we transition to these clean energy technologies. You know we shouldn't make the mistakes of the past, and we should start to think early about. What the kind of disposal and, and reuse and recycling of these technologies can be, um, and I think uh, requiring um, domestic sourcing for battery technologies is going to allow that recycling industry to take off um, there, which I think is uh, might seem like a small point, but I think is really important when you think about tens of millions of vehicles and grid scale storage and all of these things using uh, you know using these kinds of minerals and technologies. And recycling for solar panels matters too. I and mean, that's a question that we've gotten a few times over the years. Uh, and my answer has always been, well, geez, solar panels made in the 1970s are still producing 70% of their rated power. Uh, but ultimately we are gonna have to do that. I believe there's one company in the US that's doing it. Um, you, you know, it's a, it's a fledgling uh, small industry or a fledgling industry <clears throat> on its own. So one, one question, and maybe this is our last question in the last minute and a half. Do you have any sense of the, uh, of, and it's probably too early to really answer this question, but we've got efficiency main incentives. We've got federal tax credits. Uh, how is efficiency main gonna respond to any of the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act um, incentives and tax credits? Uh, do you have any sense about how that might work out? 
Um, I, you know, we haven't had a conversation with them uh, about it yet. Um, I know that they're they're generally pretty smart with how they allocate their their investments to get the most uh, energy savings um, fr from them. So I could see that potentially happening um, over time, um, but but we haven't had those uh, conversations. I think one one thing that I'm also really looking forward to seeing is um, we instituted a, a state clean energy accelerator or green bank um, a few years ago, uh, which is housed at Efficiency Maine, and they are standing up, which which will leverage private uh, capital um, to uh, to be able to fund and uh, and and help uh, catalyze a ton of investment in in all of these spaces. And the Inflation Reduction Act has uh, you know 27 billion dollars for green banks and clean energy accelerators across the country. Um, so Maine's looking pretty smart right now and putting that in place a couple of years ago because um, we could see a lot of capitalization there, um, which could fund a lot of projects, save people a lot of money and a lot of energy too. Well, that sounds like a, a half a program right there. Uh, so what interesting stuff and I was not aware of that. So you've been listening to Power for the People here on WERU-FM. Guest has been Jack Shapiro, the Climate and Clean Energy Director for the Natural Resources Council of Maine. Um, by the way, the, the EV survey that he mentioned, uh, you can find the results there at nrcm.org. Just thought I'd mention that, forgot to a few minutes ago. So Power for the People airs on the fourth Wednesday in the Public Affairs 4 p.m. time slot. And we will see you next month. Thanks so much for joining us.